This is Anthony in Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. ever seen a YouTube video or a picture of my office, you know that I love books. I spend a lot of time in bookstores and I tend to look up books that might not have come to my attention somewhere else. And I'll pick them up and I'll read the cover, I'll read the flap, I'll look at the blurbs on the back of the book to decide whether or not it's something that I might want to pick up. And I found a book called Sense Making: The Power of the Humanities in the Age of the Algorithm by Christian Madspier. And it is a brilliant book, probably my favorite book that I've read this year, and a critical book for thinking about how to succeed in the world that we live in now. Christian is a really, really bright guy. He is a management consultant at Red Partners. He writes, he speaks, he teaches on the practical application of the human sciences with his work featured in just about every newspaper that you can think of. The book is called Sensemaking, The Power of Humanities in the Age of the Algorithm. And this is Christian Matspier in the arena. Christian, thank you for being here. I appreciate your time. Of course. Thank you for inviting me. Your book is probably the most important book for business people to read this year, generally, but especially leaders. I said this to you before we started recording that I think this is a strong nudge for people to get moved off of a, a devotion to a point of view that's problematic and not only problematic, um, I think, for their results, but also problematic for society in general. So that's my starting point here. Can I ask you to start by sharing when you write a book, it's because you have something that you have to share. And it's a lot of work to do that. So what were you seeing that caused you to write sense-making? And what were you hoping that people would get that would cause them to believe or do something different after reading it? I think it was written out of annoyance rather than enthusiasm. It was written out of worry that a very narrow, rationalist, arrogant view of how we make decisions in this world was pretty much dominating the discussion. It's a kind of view that is uninterested and irritated by humans. So humans are, we, are in the view of this particular, you could call it an ideology, you can call it like a way of thinking. We are imperfect beings. Uh, we can't figure out anything. We make, we're not as good as robots. We get tired. We have emotions. You know, we have other priorities than the optimization of something. And I just thought that was a bleak future if, if nobody said anything about that. And nobody did at the time. I mean, the, the humanities were quiet. The social sciences were quiet and only talking about very few specific topics and not so much broad topics. And I think they didn't really, weren't really tuned on to what was going on in business and in technology in particular. What's interesting to me is when I started reading the book, I was hooked right out of the gate because the subtitle is the, the power of humanities in the age of the algorithm. And the algorithm right now is the dominant conversation that I believe business people are having. And they're trying to figure out how to create a chat bot 
so that no human being has to interact with another human being to get them help. And then a few weeks ago, I saw Google released a offering called Duplex, which was an automated algorithm that called a hair salon and scheduled an appointment. And it tried very hard to sound like a human being. So the Turing test, that kind of a thing. And people were really enthused by the disintermediation of other human beings and that we would have the ability to have a computer talk to a human being in a way that made that person believe that. So I got to the section in the book called A Silicon Valley State of Mind. That chapter for me sort of, I want to say it was disturbing. Can I ask you to describe what is the Silicon Valley state of mind and maybe this idea of everything must be disrupted? I think there are two aspects. The duplex example you just gave is the clearest example in the last couple of months. Before that, it was probably the the Facebook trial or the Facebook panel in Washington, D.C. But if you take the duplex case, they and this is Google, so thousands and thousands of people have developed a device that are technologically extraordinary. And it can read now, that it can do a natural language processing so well that a human on the other end of the line might be duped into thinking it's a human. And that's what they presented. But nobody during that process of making that said, wait a minute, is that such a good idea? What if we did this? What if we release this on the world? How many old people would be called up by these things and thinking it's a human they're talking to? How much could you do with this kind of thing in terms of tricking people into voting for you or tricking people into buying something that they shouldn't have bought? How good is this? How helpful is this? How are the the lesser angels of our sort of uh, of our being released by this kind of seemingly benevolent technology? And I believe them when they say, oh, we never thought about that. And I believe the Facebook founder when he said, I was just in a dorm room making an app of comparing how good girls were looking. And suddenly I'm in front of a congressional panel and I never thought about that. The point here is they never thought about it because they're not trained in it. They haven't had uh, comparative literature. They haven't had any training in critical thinking. They're trained in building things without any thought about it. And that comes down to the agile development process, which are these sprints of aggressive development of code where there is no time and no interest in thinking, in human thought about consequences, unintended consequences, what might happen, um, investigating what might the intersection of human benevolence and this thing, you know, this piece of code do and what might the opposite what might the opposite do it's a lack of thought it's not mean people it's just a complete lack of thought and an inability to have the crooked timber of humanity as part of the equation what's interesting to me about that is that with with all of the conversation around artificial intelligence that no one has said there must be an artificial moral intelligence applied to this and that doesn't come into it and i think I'd love your feedback on this. It just seems to me that when you drop humanities and when you drop the things that make us human from the conversation altogether, you end up with a lack of the the morality equation as you think about these things. And I'm not saying humanity people, people that went to the humanities are better people than others. Philosophers are not in any way better than others. But our songs and our stories and our education 
and our moral code and our religion is also important. <laughs> it's not just code. You don't have to have a, a degree in philosophy to do this. You just have to be, you just have to care about art, music, and our cities and things like that. And it's as if that is, has left the equation. And that's why I wrote the book. And this alternative, and that's, that comes back to your question, this alternative narrative is we are idiots. Existing companies are stupid. Um, they're slow. And uh, we will apply rational thought to them. And, and hence, we will disrupt them and make billions. And I think now they start talking about trillions of dollars, right? Billions are no longer cool. Now you need trillions of dollars. And by the way, we will make the world a better place while we do it. Why? Well, we don't know. We just are. That's a Silicon Valley state of mind. And it seems to be driven more by efficiency of any outcome versus any kind of effectiveness where you think about what's the whole and what's the real outcome? What are we doing? If you think about sales, which is one of your topics, is a good sale as the optimized one or is it the convincing one? Right? You might have an algorithm that can call on a doctor at exactly the right time, given some statistical significance with AI, but really truly convincing a doctor that there is a different way of treating diabetes. That's not an algorithm's job. That's a human's job. It's the use of both that's helpful. I'm not against intelligence. I'm not against code. I'm not, certainly not against computers. But I'm against the idea that you can do that without humans. How can you look at a patient, if you're a doctor, if you take the Watson case, right? Watson says that they're better at diagnosing patients than doctors are because doctors get tired, doctors make mistakes, and doctors can't read material as fast as Watson can. Right. But how about context? How about what the situation I'm in as a diabetic, say? and the people that I have around me, and the trouble I have figuring out what to eat, and all those things. Those are not rational things. Those are human things that, that need empathy and thought, and computers can't do that. Computers don't care. Humans do. I believe that deeply, and I write it all the time. Caring is the, the killer app in all things human. That is the difference maker of all difference makers. I'm going to get to context in a minute, but I, I want to ask you, I'm a student of Ken Wilber's Integral Theory, and Claire Graves' Spiral Dynamics, both of those which require that one look at all four quadrants. So it would be the objective and subjective, internal and external. So they also contain something that's sort of a cultural level of consciousness that you need to sort of make sense of individual behavior in the world. Are you familiar with integral theory or spiral dynamics? A little bit, yes. Okay. What I notice about your work is you have this sort of setting off of the difference between looking at culture and looking at individuals. So when you think about business and in other areas where that makes a difference, can you share how looking at culture is different than just looking at individuals? Right. So if you were the Ford Motor Company and you want to sell F-150 trucks, it's a very big American icon of a car. And if they looked at all the people that could possibly buy an F-150 truck, and they optimized the algorithm so that it would send out messages at the time these people would be interested. My question is, what would they say? How would they engage with people that would be interested in F-150 trucks? 
And I think if they went to their communities and they saw that the F-150 truck is a member of the community, it's in many ways what makes many of the Midwestern communities work is that this machine can move refrigerators and can start the bake sale and can be part of uh, selling lemonade at the yearly 5K run and can help out when somebody gets divorced and so on. This is a member of the community. It is a, also a symbol of being a good person to many of these people. The fact that you own an F-150 truck signals to the rest of the world that you're a person that cares about the rest of them. So, and, it, and in many of the, the highly religious communities, it's a symbol of being a good Christian. It's a symbol of being a person that is a member of the community and is taking care of the community, which is part of being a member of the church and so on. So deeply cultural things are going on with this object of the F-150 truck. And without understanding that, how can you make it and sell it? And uh, how can you make communities around it? How can you make people enjoy it? How can you make people buy it again? I don't get it. And it, of course, it doesn't work without it. And if you were to go to the spec sheet and the technical aspects of the truck, it's going to be great on all of those as well. But the fact of the matter is that isn't why they're buying it. Absolutely not. And, and it's not why they're, what they're using, by the way. They're using 20%, 30% of the things this machine can do because it has another purpose. Yeah. When you look at big data, and big data now is being used in all sorts of ways to try to explain human behavior. And I'll say there are some people who believe that it does explain human behavior. Can you share the difference between what thick data is and what thin data is? And you've already said this, it's not that data doesn't have value, but with the context dropping, it's different. So what is the difference between thick data and thin data? So thin data is data without context. So data points without context. So that would be all the data of F-150 trucks driving around in Colorado right now. How fast they're driving, where they are, how many people are in the seats, and so on. The thick data is a word that's sort of invented for thick description. It's the data that is extracted through anthropological or some uh, what's called ethnographic exercises, where you observe people in their context and you use your own humanity, your own ability to understand other people, your own empathy and care to understand what's going on with these people. So if 150 truck owners in Colorado, if you were driving with people, you would, other than seeing where they are and uh, how much they're driving, you would also see why are they there? Is it a meaningful thing? Is it different from other ways of driving? Is it something they're enjoying? How does it fit into other parts of their life? Right. So thick data is the description of context, and thin data is contextless data points. Now, I'm not for one against the other, but I'm against religion when it comes to data. I'm against when somebody says big data can do everything, or when somebody says thick data can do everything. I think the combination of the two is what is needed. And the problem is right now, one is clearly winning the investment dollars over the other. Are we really conflating everything subjective to what we can see objectively in a sort of scientific materialist kind of way, like everything is the thin data? Right. So the objective-subjective dichotomy is uh, one that I've been trying to talk a lot about. And I think subjective 
if you think about it, is about the inner. So your inner thoughts, your inner feelings, and so on. Objective is whatever can be measured or counted or so on. But how about all the things that are in between the two? In my book, I call it the third kind of knowledge. I want to talk about that specifically because I think that is increasingly important to be successful probably in any business endeavor now. Absolutely. So the third kind of knowledge is cultural knowledge. So you know, because you're an American, you know how one speaks and how one reads a room and how one convinces someone and when it's enough and when I've talked long enough or do I stand too far or too close to someone? All those kinds of things are cultural kinds of knowledge. Are they objective? No, you can't really measure them in that way. Are they subjective? No, they're not inner. It's not, they're not experienced as inner. You don't think am I standing too far, too close to someone? You just stand in the appropriate distance to someone so that it feels comfortable speaking to each other. And that's not a conscious process. It's not a process that's in front of consciousness and you think through it. It's something that you just do. So I'm sure if you're a good salesman, it's what you have a lot of. A good salesman would be someone that can read a room, figure out where people are at, what kind of mood are they in, How are they thinking about these things? Where are they going with what they're talking about? And then they can place themselves in a relevant way to these people. That's the third knowledge or intersubjective knowledge, you could call it, or in-between-us kind of knowledge. And it's crucial for any human interaction. I like Ken Wilber's Integral for just that reason. There's sort of a collective interior, a collective subjectivity that the rules are well-defined, even though they're not objective at all, but they exist. And I think when you talk about commercial enterprises as a salesperson or a marketer or someone who does what you do in the consulting role, you go into another person's world and there's a certain context that exists there. So I, I wonder if you could talk about the value of context in helping to understand, and if I could lead you to talking about the chains of meaning and the, the idea of an order to this or to an order to that, and what that gives the person who is interested in finding out what the thick data is in addition to their thin data. Right. So this is all derived from a German philosopher called Martin Heidegger, who wrote in the 20s. And he had many, many insights. And you know, if you ever have time, anybody should spend some time with that. But he had this concept of how experience is organized. How are we organizing the way we look at the world, we human beings? And he said, very simply, that we organize our experience in worlds. So you would know what the business world is, or what the art world is, or what the world of San Francisco is, or what the world of international travel is like. And you would know that those worlds have equipment in them. So the art world would have canvases and paint and shows and money and art dealers and auctions and all kinds of things. And those are all meaningful things that are organized in what he called in chains of in order to. So you take a canvas and a brush in order to put paint on a canvas, in order to put up a show, in order to sell tickets, in order to eventually sell your paint, in order to be an artist. So he said like that in every world, there are equipment in order to, so in order to chains of activity and identity. So being an artist. And we have a very intuitive way of 
knowing that. So if you start getting interested in photography or saltwater fly fishing, you would know that I need to know the equipment. I need to know what a camera is and what different cameras are and which lenses to use and how to do portraits and so on. And in the end, you would see yourself, I'm a guy that's into photography or in saltwater fly fishing, it would be boats and fly fishing equipment and flies and guides and so on. And all those are organized in the same way. There's a structure to a world and the people that are really good at that world that are excellent at that world. We look at masters of fly fishing or masters of photography or masters of sales, right? So in the corporate world also has, in order to change, so it has computers and consultants and products and so on and meetings. And they are organized in order to be a business person or for the sake of being a business person and for the sake of making money and all those kinds of things that companies do. And Without having a full contextual understanding of that world, you can't maneuver in it. You can't figure out how to find your way around in it. And the thing is that data is not organized in worlds. It's not at all organized in that way. So that's why when you search for something on Google, you get a list rather than a world. You get a list of the most relevant things here, but it's not organized in the way that you would normally learn about that world. So it doesn't help you much in terms of learning how a particular world works. So deriving, extracting thick data is learning about worlds. It's interesting to me if people live in the same world, how the fact that they have the cultural context and they all know what that world is allows them to have a different kind of relationship almost automatically because that person already understands the world. So when you think about people that drive Jeeps, for example, whenever they pass another Jeep, they wave at the person because they have the same contextual understanding of in order to and what they think the world is. And I just wonder how much when we, we drop that and not go into that person's world, we're making decisions and making assumptions without the understanding of what that world really means. Back to your Ford F-150, what is that? What does it really mean? And we tend to drop those things. And if um, we drop it, we don't understand. Right. And then it becomes non-contextualized data that is meaningless. The thing is, though, we all have it. Purely by being human, we have this understanding of worlds. We don't have the same fidelity. We don't have the same masterful engagement with it, but we all understand it. So the understanding of big data is parasitic on this world understanding. So what they don't understand, the people that say that AI will take over everything, is without people to interpret, there is no world, and hence there is no precision, there is no contextual right act, there's no great sale, there's no great diagnosis of a patient. I want to ask you to talk about Dreyfus and the different types of knowledge that one may possess. And I want you to get to, I guess, a little bit deeper about how we intuit something and that it's not just the objective knowledge. So would you mind sharing the types of knowledge? Oh, the three types of knowledge or the Dreyfus model? Go with the Dreyfus model. Right. Uh, so how we, how we acquire. As you can hear, I'm not an English natural speaker. It's my second language. So when you learn a new language, you start out with the structure of it. So anybody that has tried to learn German or English or other languages will know that you start with the grammar. Right? So that's the, the grammar is the structure of something. And then after a little while, you master, that's the second and third step, you master the grammar in such a way that you can speak 
correctly. That takes a little while. And then after you've learned more and sort of exercised your ability to speak English or German or something more, you forget about the grammar. You forget about that there is this structure underneath. You don't think about it anymore. What you do, you maybe once in a while if you're confused, but in general, you would leave the supporting structure behind and you would become fluid in something. And when your language becomes fluid, it's no longer hard for you to sort of think about how to create the right sentence. It is no longer hard for you to recall the right concepts or the right words for something. You can do it with ease, just like learning how to ride a bicycle or learning how to drive a car. After a while, the clutch disappears when you learn how to drive a car. In the beginning, it's very present, but after a while, it disappears from your conscience and you're just looking at the road and talking to people and sort of driving. And it's at that level, when you're fluid with something, you can intuit. That's when you can intuitively engage with that world, the world of driving or the world of speaking English. And after, you know, at, at a certain point of that, you could be a master at it. You can be particularly good at driving or particularly good at speaking English so that other people recognize you as someone with an elegant way of creating sentences or with a certain precision in the way they speak. I've seen, you know, just in your world of salespeople, the people that have done it a lot have an ability to read a room and intuit the people that they're working with so that the sale has depth, so that the people that you're selling to are convinced that this is a better than other decisions they could have made. And they stay with it and they don't get angry at you two weeks later because you sold them something. So basically, he describes these steps of learning that starts with something very rudimentary and structural and ends up in this completely fluid and intuitive relationship to something. Almost everyone who speaks English as a, a natural-born English speaker knows all the rules of grammar but couldn't tell you what they are. Exactly. And so you get these things, and that's a different level of mastery. There's a German word that I may mispronounce, but it's Fingerspitzengefühl. Exactly. Which I think roughly translates to fingertip feel. Yeah. And I think that that's a different level of knowledge that you have to be immersed in something long enough that your decision-making is not something conscious anymore, and it's not objective or subjective, but it's just being able to recognize some pattern that if I asked you what was that pattern, you may not be able to explain it to me, but it's right because of this great depth of experience. That seems to me to be a, a different level of knowledge that one can't get from a book or from reading or from looking at data. It's something that you have to get in some other way. All right. So I've been out fly fishing with uh, great fly fishing guides that have been going on a river forever. They've been growing up on it. And they point to a trout 20 feet away I just don't understand how they see that. And it's, they say, well, the water was weird or <laughs> something. They, they just have, it seems, a different level of understanding of that particular place in the world. I think, and I interviewed uh, George Soros for this book, the way he reads the market is also beyond linear and beyond mathematical. It is a feeling he's got because he's seen it a million times before. Mm -hmm. So he can, when he feels bad about the market and he starts feeling uncomfortable about the, I don't know, 
a particular industry or a particular currency, he has it in his gut. That doesn't mean that gut reaction is the only way of extracting information, but it's one way of extracting it. That's my next question, because there's this contextual knowledge, and I just want to ask you to share, it's Norman Lamont, if I'm right, is the name. He was indignant about giving up the Deutschmark. And I don't want to say that it was exclusively that piece of knowledge that Soros had from your story, but it was enough to maybe lead him down a path to bet against the British pound when the euro came into existence. Can you just share a little bit about that situation? Because it's an interesting thing to me that the data set might give you some understanding of what's going to happen when the euro comes into creation. But he's looking at one individual's strong belief and holding on to some value system. That's enough for him to make a different bet. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. So everybody had the same data, right? Everybody had the economic data from the different countries, the different reports from from analysts. They all had the same data. The way that Soros and his team looked at it was that they also layered a cultural understanding on top of it. So they would say, would the Germans do this? How would the British react? How would the Germans react if the British reacted in a particular way? And he calls that reflexivity. So it's the idea that people react to people, react to people. And then they go down these sort of rabbit holes of chains of reactions that are dependent on their situation. So he was as interested in the German psyche and the mood of the German economy and how much slack the Germans would cut the British in this particular situation. When he did his bet and he made like more than a billion dollars in a day, on that bet. Everybody else said, well, we saw that too. His point is, yeah, but you didn't react on it, did you? It was so clear for them when they saw it because it was this overlayer to the economic data with a cultural understanding and a contextual understanding of the players involved. And in this case, there was a particular chairman of the German National Bank whose psyche was particularly German in a way and and sort of represented the German way of looking at monetary policy and so on. That's the same way as the World Cup in soccer is coming out. It's the same thing when a great defender sees the game move in a way and places himself and stops the opponents because he's placed himself by understanding where would these people go when they come at you. It's a way of reading other people that only people can do. Do you read uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb? Yes. Yeah, and so the the, the so very much. Uh, me too. And I, I think that when I when I think about Soros in that situation, you know, Taleb always says the same thing: "Don't tell me what you believe. Show me what's in your portfolio." His bet, and I think your bet too here, is that the the nonlinearity has great value. And one of my favorite quotes right now is the one that you have from. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson in your book that when human beings enter anything, it immediately goes nonlinear, which is why physics is easy and and the social sciences are impossible. But it's not impossible. If you can get the shared knowledge and you can understand culture, it is understandable at some level to understand what is the mood of the German people right now and how do they look at the British with greater debt and inflation because of their different histories and where they are in time. That's being interested in history and culture and moods and politics and all kinds of human things. I think masters do that. The masters of a third kind of knowledge here 
they do that as as well as they also look at quantitative things. It would be stupid not to. Sure. It's not one over the other. You won me over in the book, but when you got to Flannery O'Connor as a quote, that really did a lot for me. I mean, she's my favorite, what I would call a nonfiction writer, even though she writes fiction. But even reading her, as much as I love it, you get this immense sense of dread and loathing that's like a horror movie for me because you can see something coming and her ability to draw that out with words is, I think, exceptional. That chapter starts on a conversation that I want to point to one section of, and it's the innovation without social context. So this sort of leads us back to the idea at the beginning of this disruptive idea and what you call the Silicon Valley state of mind. What's the value of uh, the social context and abductive reasoning versus alternatives? I don't know what the percentage is right now, but it used to be more than 90% of all products failed. When Kraft or Coke or Ford made a new product, more than 90% of the launches didn't live up to the business case, the original business case that it was done with. Why? Well, because it was done by a group of designers in a, or engineers in a room away from the people that were actually going to use this. And the way that they would then do consumer research would be send out a survey to a thousand people, and then those thousand people would say, yeah, I'd like that, and yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't like that, without really being interested, without really going there and looking at what life is like for the people using these things. I had the CFO of a major automaker. I insisted that they would go and meet some people that weren't like them. I, we went to Virginia, and sort of rural Virginia, and he came back, the CFO of this company, and said, they are on a budget. And he was so surprised <laughs> that people that bought their smallest cars had budgets. And, that they're, and he said, we, we're thinking all wrong about these cars. It's not about the price. It's about the lifetime value. It's the cost of maintenance and all kinds of things. And we said, yes, <laughs> there you go. And that came through the spending a full day with normal people doing normal things in a normal situation. And it clarifies the mind to go and live with people that live differently than you. And if you think about the CFO, he's a millionaire. He's never bought a car in his life, right? He hasn't bought a car for 30 years because he gets car for free from the company. And they're always clean and they're always uh, uh, full of fuel. And that's different from life in rural Virginia. This is the difference between the savannah and the zoo, as you put it in the book. I mean, you have to go and, and watch a lion do what a lion does to understand a lion. And uh, the zoo is not a good replication. Sad and one. It's a bad one. Yeah, I think it's a, an interesting approach. And I think more people would do well to spend time trying to understand the context in addition to the data. And yeah. uh, your book is, it's a spectacular book. We're going to put links here for people to pick the book up on Amazon. Also, I would recommend getting it on Audible too. It's a good listen when you're in the space where you want to actually pick up this a second time. It's been helpful for me to be able to listen to that. Uh, as a final question, I'd like to ask what you think about, we started with talking about Facebook and the congressional thing, and they had the thing in Europe too. What do you think about the struggles and challenges that that sort of represents? Because it sort of represents some of the thinking that you've got here. And what should they be thinking about the data and their responsibility to their user base, if you have an opinion on that? This is a question that we've got to deal with as a society. What's the appropriate use of our personal information? And the answer is not, I think, 
100% privacy. Because these companies serve us in different ways. We can, we right now, for instance, we probably are not paying for talking to each other. And there are a lot of services online that are, in quotes, free. And that is a business model that's relevant, but, and that Google and Facebook and others are, are using. But I think we are in the brute state of it, and we need to humanize it. And I think it's a case of we need to humanize technology or civilize technology. And that includes AI and Internet of Things and all the things that come out of technological labs these days need to have a human perspective. And I think that includes Facebook. And if I could end up on a positive note, Facebook has in the last six months hired hundreds of anthropologists and sociologists and have hired people with deep skill in the kinds of study that I'm talking about here. It's also happening at Microsoft, and it's also happening at Google. And they are shocked by the reaction that they got, particularly because of the Trump election and the Cambridge Analytica case. But they are shocked by that they're no longer just the good guys. They're no longer, by default, doing good. They're really, uh, I think, honestly, they didn't know what hit them. But they are reacting, and I hope, and I'm more positive than I was five years ago when I started writing this book. The pendulum seems to be swinging back a little bit in these places, and they're trying to figure out how do we study these things. It's also happening in the American military, where people are saying, if we know these kinds of things about people, how do we create a system where somebody raises their hands and say, this is too far? How do we create a mechanism and a training system for including this kind of logic in how we make decisions. So I think that's very good. It's not the end of all, but it's the beginning of something. It makes me think of just how human beings evolve generally and how our morality tends to evolve over the course of our life. And I think of these companies as being almost like a teenager where you're completely egocentric and self-absorbed and pretty much oblivious to second, third, and fourth person perspectives. But over time, as you mature, you start to lose that with hope and you become more responsible to understanding other people's views and, and how to, to successfully navigate that from a moral perspective. That's and exactly we're it. just at the awkward teenage stage of all this right now where it will get better from here. Yeah. I think the best description of, a, of Elon Musk is an awkward teenager. <laughs> yeah. Christian, where should we send people to find out more about you and your work? I have a company called Red Associates, which is redassociates.com. And we have a, you know, all the different platforms that we're on. That might, might be the best place because that's where I publish all my writing and where we do videos about these things and so on. And they're all, most of it is not commercial. It's philosophical in a way. I teach at the New School, so the New School for Social Research in New York City. Um, and there's a lot of, of activities going on around that in town. So those might be the two best places. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you for your great work. I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show. Thank you. Take care. That was Christian Madsbier. You can find him at redassociates.com. You can find his work, Sense Making, on Amazon.com or at Barnes & Noble. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com. When you go there, do sign up for the newsletter, My Best Work, every Sunday. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. And you found me here at In the Arena. If this was helpful for you, if you like it, 
then please leave a review and leave a comment here so that we can help other people find this content and find their way to ideas like sense making. A few other links that you might find helpful. My training offering is at b2bsalestraining.com. Check that out for the best in professional, consultative, trusted advisor, peer type training for B2B salespeople. And also, if you're interested in productivity, go to b2bsalestoolkit.com where you can find a planner that I built for sales professionals specifically. I'm Anthony Arino. Until next time, I'll see you in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.